Hello, everyone, and welcome to Silver Streams, the weekly podcast from the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center's programming team. I'm Todd Hitchcock, AFI Silver's Director of Programming. I'm Abby Algar, Associate Film Programmer. And I'm Ben Delgado, the Assistant Film Programmer. And today we're going to discuss the latest offerings in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, as well as recommending some other titles to view at home. So new this week, we have Rendezvous in July, a new 2K restoration of Jacques Becker's 1949 comedy about a group of jazz-crazy young Parisians trying to build their lives after World War II. We have Camilla, an atmospheric coming-of-age tale by British filmmaker Emily Harris, inspired by the 1872 Gothic vampire novella by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. We also have a new restoration of legendary director Zhang Yimou's sumptuous Oscar and Golden Globe-nominated 1995 crime thriller, Shanghai Triad, starring Gong Li. And Bungalow, a new 4K restoration of German filmmaker Ulrich Koller's first film, a subtly comic love triangle starring Danish actress Trini Deholm. And lastly, we also have a new 2K restoration of legendary British actor and comedian Peter Sellers' 1961 directorial debut and solo credit, Mr. Topaz, um, which has been digitally restored at the request of the British public from the last known surviving prints at the BFI National Archive. And as with our previous episodes, today we're going to cover all of the new films premiering this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, recap the films that opened in previous weeks that are currently available to view there, and close with our programmer's picks, where we discuss other recommendations for what to screen at home. This is episode 16 of Silver Streams. We began this podcast in early April, shortly after closing the doors to the AFI Silver Theater and launching our virtual cinema program. We want to thank everyone both for listening to the podcast and for screening films at home from our virtual screening room. By screening these films at home, you are supporting AFI Silver. We receive a portion of the proceeds for every virtual cinema transaction that you make. So by screening at home this way, you are supporting our theater during our closure. Thank you all for supporting us this way during this challenging time. And our big hit uh, last week was the Austrian film, The Tobacconist, uh, which is based on the international bestseller by Robert Zitaler um, and stars the late Bruno Ganst as, as Freud. So a big thank you to everyone who watched that. Um, it's an encore from J by J last year where it was a closing night film. And, and so we're really, really happy to be able to, to bring it to more people. And I'm also happy to note that two more of the additional films in our virtual screening room that were added last week uh, were among the top performers. And that was We Are Little Zombies and House of Hummingbird. Um, these two are two of my absolute favorites, not only in the screening room, but um, of films that have come out this year, two of my favorites there overall. And also doing really well, uh, very popular with all of you viewers out there uh, at the moment in our screening room are the documentary selections. So Ai Weiwei, Yours Truly, John Lewis, Good Trouble, and Capital in the 21st Century. That is the film version, documentary version of the Thomas Piketty Economic Home uh, continues its great run in the virtual screening room, continues to do really well. So thank you all for uh, watching those films at home. Before we get into the new films that are opening this week, that being the week going into Friday, July 17, we have an announcement to make. We will be taking a two-week hiatus from the podcast, so we won't be back with a new episode until Friday, August 7. 
So looking ahead to the week of July 24, the films that will be new um, either on that Friday or leading up to that Friday, we're going to let you know now, listeners of the Silver Streams podcast, you're hearing it here first, what films are going to open that week coming up. So this is for Friday, July 24, or going into Friday, July 24. So yeah, Friday, July 24th, we're going to be opening Days of the Whale. This is an encore screening from our 2019 Latin American Film Festival. And it follows two young graffiti artists on the streets of Medellin, Colombia. As they continue to paint over a threatening tag from a, a local gang building up tensions in the city and, and risking their safety in doing so. And we'll also be opening that week Antoine and Antoinette, the 1947 French classic directed by the great Jacques Becker in a new digital restoration from Rialto Pictures. Also opening on July 24th, we have the new horror film Amulet, and that's British actress Ramona Garay's feature-length directorial debut, um, a chilling psychosexual chamber piece that premiered at this year's Sundance to great acclaim. And rounding out the selection of films opening for the week of Friday, July 24, Helmut Newton, The Bad and the Beautiful, a documentary portrait of the famed art and fashion photographer, Helmut Newton, featuring interviews with many of his most famous collaborators, including Charlotte Rampling, Catherine Deneuve, Isabella Rossellini, Grace Jones, Claudia Schiffer, Heidi Klum, and Vogue editor Anna Wintour. And then for the week following that, so this will be the week leading into Friday, July 31, we will open the following five pictures in our virtual screening room. So actually starting on July 29th, a couple of days before, before the Friday, we've teamed up with Hope Runs High Films to present a virtual retrospective called 20th Century Woman, the documentary films of Lee Grant, which will highlight the nonfiction work of Academy Award winning actress and director Lee Grant. Uh, who was the honoree at this year's AFI Doc Skugenheim Symposium and uh, who was part of the inaugural class of AFI's directing workshop for women in, in 1974. And so starting on July 29th, as I mentioned, we'll be bringing six of Grant's documentaries to the virtual screening room, one a week. And we'll be starting with the 1986 Best Documentary Oscar winner, Down and Out in America, which is a very powerful exploration of poverty in the U.S. in the 1980s, and it's uh, one that I just saw, actually, as, as part of AFI Docs. And we also have another documentary that premiered this year at Sundance, Rebuilding Paradise. This is the latest film from director Ron Howard, and it also recently played in the virtual AFI Docs Film Festival. The film documents the community of Paradise, California, during and after the devastating wildfires of 2018, as they attempt to rebuild their community there. Also opening July 31, The Fight, the Sundance Special Jury Award-winning documentary about the American Civil Liberties Union, which takes an inside look at the legal battles that lawyers for the ACLU are currently facing during the Trump administration. And we also have the film Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. This is the acclaimed new documentary from the Ross Brothers that premiered at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. And it follows a group of blue-collar regulars at a local dive bar outside of Las Vegas on the bar's last day of business. Uh, it also happens to be the same day as the 2016 presidential election. Uh, a very nice documentary that I highly recommend. And also opening on the, the 31st, we have A Girl Missing, um, Japanese director Koji Fukada's follow-up to the critically acclaimed Harmonium. And that's about a private home nurse who's quiet, 
routine life is shattered when a young member of the family who, who employ her is kidnapped. So it's kind of a thriller. So we're excited for that one. Also opening on July 31st is the French comedy, My Dog Stupid, uh, Ivan Attell's hilarious adaptation of, of John Fante's cult 1985 novel, West of Rome, about a middle-aged writer with fading inspiration who decides to adopt a bad-mannered dog that he finds in his garden, much to the dismay of his family and neighbors. And the film stars director Ivan Attell alongside his real-life partner, Charlotte Gainsbourg. And the final film in our virtual screening room for the 31st is Made in USA. This is the 1966 classic directed by Jean-Luc Godard. It's uh, his final feature in which he collaborated with actress Anna Karina. And it's his riff on Howard Hawks' The Big Sleep, uh, in which Karina plays an author investigating the death of her lover in the fictional town of Atlantic City, France. Um, the film is actually dedicated to Nick and Sam, in this case, Nicholas Ray and Sam Fuller, who Godard credits as having taught him about image and sound. So a lot of good stuff coming up over the next few weeks and a nice variety of options right now, including the five new films debuting this week that we'll be discussing next. First, a reminder, you can find all titles that we are currently offering to screen at home on our website at afi.com silver. And when you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our e-blast to keep up with our latest announcements. If you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo at afi.com. You can find the podcast each Friday posted on our website at afi.com slash silver in our Friday e-blast and across our social media channels. And we're also on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most of the places that you normally find your podcasts. And if you're unable to find the podcast where you're looking for it, uh, please be sure to navigate to our website, anchor.fm slash silver dash streams. And there you can listen to the podcast directly on the page, or you can take the RSS feed and drop it into your app of choice. And that way you will have the episode as soon as it comes out. And you'll also have it if you subscribe. So please subscribe after putting the link in or just at any time. Subscribe to make sure you're getting it when we put it out. Okay, the first of our five new films debuting in the virtual screening room this week is Rendezvous in July, a 1949 coming-of-age dramedy from director Jacques Becker. Uh, it's certainly appropriate opening it this time, this season, uh, being that we're right here in the middle of July. Uh, not only that, but uh, Bastille Day, July 14th, was just a few days uh, behind us this week. So uh, once we became aware that this film was uh, now available for... Uh, virtual cinema in a, a terrific new digital transfer from Rialto Pictures. Didn't need a, a whole lot more convincing that now was a, a good time to uh, to put this one up. And as I mentioned a few moments back, we'll have another um, 40s Becker film uh, the following week, uh, Antoine and Antoinette, also from Rialto Pictures. So Jacques Becker, uh, certainly best known for Touchepas au Grisby, one of the all-time great canonical French film noir starring uh, Jean Gabin and Lino Ventura. Close, close behind that, close second to that would be Le True or The Hole from 1960. Both of, the, both of these are films we talked about in passing, discussing Claude Sauté's Class 2 Risque uh, a couple weeks back. 
all came out fairly close together, 50s and 60s. They shared uh, screenwriter uh, on a couple of these, on two of the three with uh, Jose Giovanni and Lena Ventura in a couple of these as well. And if if that was all you knew about Jacques Becker's work, well, you would have seen two terrific films in Grisby and Latrue, and you might assume that that was kind of his, his specialty, that he did these kind of uh, crime, hard-boiled, uh, very manly man sort of films. Um, but that wouldn't be completely accurate. When you look at his the entirety of his career, uh, he worked across a wide range of genres and uh, demonstrated incredible facility uh, working with, across a range of different kinds of material, different kinds of films. Starting out in the early post-war period and all through the 50s, Becker directed romances, comedies, melodramas. And uh, in terms of drawing a comparison with sort of a, a Hollywood filmmaker who's analogous to to that kind of um, diversity and um, skill across genres. Uh, one name that has come up uh, uh, cited by different people, uh, among them Bertrand Tavernier, uh, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, of course, famous for All About Eve and The Letter to Three Wives, but he also did uh, some uh, crime films and uh, comedies, uh, and of course, infamously, uh, the epic film and, and, and the problematic uh, money-losing epic film, uh, Cleopatra, later in his career. So I get the comparison to Mankiewicz, uh, but for me, um, the filmmaker whose work Becker really compares to is Nicholas Ray, who also demonstrated some uh, dexterity moving from genre to genre, but very specifically and very specific to this film, the sympathetic portrayal of youth um, and their experience of assorted romantic foibles. Of course, Nicholas Ray always is going to be associated with Rebel Without a Cause. And I think there's there's some interesting comparisons uh, to that film in this one and its look at uh, a young generation, in this case, a little bit more university age, but their challenges as they uh, try to find a place for themselves in this world. So Rendezvous in July is a coming of age story across an ensemble cast. Lucien, played by Daniel Gellin, dreams of traveling to the Congo to make an ethnographic film, along with his pal Roger, played by Maurice Ronet, who's trained as a cameraman but unable to find work, currently gigs as a jazz trumpeter. That is, if only the two can scrape together the funding to make the film project happen. Lucien dates Christine, played by Nicole Corcel, and Roger dates Therese, played by Brigitte Aubert. And the two girls are both drama students, and they both have gotten parts in the play written by Christine's brother, Francois, with the play directed by the impresario Rousseau. But Rousseau takes an interest in Christine, and Francois semi-secretly pursues Therese, creating a triangular romantic crisis on top of everyone's efforts to pursue their artistic passions and forge some kind of career. The film provides an insight into early post-war France as experienced by this young middle-class generation with a lot of detail and flavor and great sensitivity to the way they are dealing with having their dreams delayed and desires thwarted. But it also mixes in a lot of comedy and um, just uh, scenes with the friends um, interacting and, and enjoying themselves despite whatever their uh, problems or frustrations may be at the moment. Among the memorable imagery and detail, the gang drives around in an amphibious car owned by their pal Piro, which is presumably some kind of army surplus acquisition. So the car can turn into a boat, which at one point they use to cross the River Seine. 
Pierre was a butcher's son, and at one point he barters meat uh, that he's uh, stolen from the, the back of the shop uh, to trade for gas uh, for the amphibious car, which just we're given the impression that's the kind of thing people might have actually done at the time. And the group of friends haunt the jazz clubs of Paris. And this is kind of the film's secret weapon in that it soaks up the atmosphere of this crowded subterranean Paris nightclub. And there's several scenes like this with uh, young people dancing in close quarters. There's this crazy swing dancing, really terrific swing dancers for the part, taking place in the most crowded together close quarters setting with people being literally thrown back into the crowd and coming back out onto the very tiny floor to dance some more. Uh, It's almost like a swing dance mosh pit going on all in this extremely cramped uh, subterranean club. And uh, the young people all around, the guys are wearing flannel shirts and a lot of them have goatees and Van Dyke beards and a lot of the men are smoking pipes. So that must have been the, the fad of uh, 1949 when the film was made. It very much looks like the kind of setting that you would expect the young Jack Kerouac to wander into. It's very uh, proto-beat bohemian era on display uh, in this social milieu. And it's here that we're treated to an extended performance by American jazz cornetist Rex Stewart, uh, a veteran of the Duke Ellington bands. Um, and that's a, a wonderful little treat to have. Um, pop up in the middle of the film. A quick note about the wonderful cast. Daniel Gellin in the lead as Lucien. Uh, he had a very long, very busy career uh, over the next 40 plus years, uh, including working with Becker again a few years later on a film called Edouard and Caroline. And through the 50s, probably his, his biggest, uh, uh, most prominent run of films, uh, he worked with Max Ophuls on La Ronde and Le Plaisir. Alfred Hitchcock, in, in his second version, Hitchcock's second version of The Man Who Knew Too Much in 1956, and uh, later on with Louis Malle. Nicole Corsell plays Christine Corsell, and the actress actually adopted her professional name, Corsell, from this part. Uh, she's the bad girl in the mix, and, and she's really good. Um, also, the nature of that character, and a little bit in her look, she kind of has a Gloria Graham uh, feel to her. Um, not a huge career uh, beyond this, um, certainly not a star career, but there's one terrific film from about 14, 15 years later, really worth seeking out called Sundays and Sibel from 1962, um, where she's in the lead. And that film was actually the Oscar winner for Best Foreign Language Film that year. Um, has not been easy to see over the years, but there's a new restoration of it uh, very recently and, and do check it out. Uh, Brigitte Aubert as Therese. This was her film debut. She looks very young and uh, is very vivacious on screen. Not too much of a stretch. She has kind of an Audrey Hepburn quality to her. She had her biggest roles in the 50s, including a part in, again, Alfred Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief in 55. But ultimately, um, for the most part, she had a TV career after that. And then the biggest name for most would be Maurice Ronet, who's actually pretty far down in the cast here as Roger. And um, of course, Rene would be um, uh, made a star in the French New Wave era of the late 50s and 60s, uh, most famously an Elevator to the Gallows for Louis Malle, 1958. Another French New Wave film with a great American jazz connection with the landmark uh, Miles Davis score. Purple Noon with Alain Delon in 1960, which is, of course, a version of The Talented Mr. Ripley. And then again with Louis Malle, a lesser-known film, but really, really a terrific film, and he's outstanding in it, called Le Feu Foyer, or The Fire Within. So, Rendezvous in July is certainly a minor classic at the very least, 
but I recommend it mainly as a revelation. Uh, it's revelatory in terms of what the French commercial cinema at the time was like. Uh, again, of the very specific post-war experience of, of young people in this immediate post-war period in, in France in the late 40s, and of a completely different Jacques Becker than the one you may know from his, his better-known films, at least in terms of the ones that have been revived and are uh, easily seen in the U.S. at this point. So I highly, highly recommend checking out Rendezvous in July. Well, I'm definitely going to take your recommendation, Todd. I still need to see this one, but I do know that the filmmakers of, of the French New Wave were massive fans of, of Jacques Becker among the older generation of, of French filmmakers and what they typically dismissed as the cinema du papa. Um, and I can see why this film, as youth-oriented as it is and as you, as you describe it, might appeal to them. Uh, what do you think it was about this film in, in particular that made the French New Wave filmmakers such, such big fans? Right, so among the... Uh New Wave filmmakers and uh, be beginning first for many of them as, as journalists at Calle du Cinema before they started making their own films. Uh, many of the filmmakers from this era came in for pretty harsh criticism. But Jacques Becker was, was not one of those. For, for the most part, Jacques Becker uh, was, was held up as, as someone who they could relate to in a way that, say, Claude autant uh came in, came in for critical drubbing and was held up as... Uh, not the approach to cinema that they, they wanted to be pursuing. And I, to hazard a guess, I would say that Becker, you know, his approach to filmmaking has a number of, of elements that are in sync with what the, the New Wave um, filmmakers were, were doing with their work. So especially in a film like this, the, the orientation on, on youth, making use of real locations. This, this film is um, a mix, maybe roughly half and half between um, studio settings, really good studio settings, I should point out, and and real Parisian locations. But then, you know, it's there's nothing conventional about the the film's approach. It it somehow in the space of a hundred minutes, it seems to to cram in like a whole season's worth of romantic twists. Uh, you know, it's just very dense with plot incident, um, and yet somehow it it all glides by really smoothly and quickly. But it's it's told in kind of an unconventional way. And we're never in the dark about things, but some things that maybe another director would stage as a big revelation is kind of casually revealed to us. And just by watching how people are reacting to things being not even said, but sometimes just intimated, we, you know, we get the story that way. And then the interesting atmospherics and the interest in sort of uh, the willingness to sort of pursue a tangential sequence aside from you know, tight, commercial, conventional, studio-oriented filmmaking. Again, for example, the extended dance and, and musical sequences in the jazz clubs, where Becker just like seems to take this approach, like I want to give the viewer a sense of this atmosphere and a sense of the people there enjoying themselves and the way that they're giving themselves to enjoying the, the music and dance going on. Not the kind of approach you would see in a, in a ton of movies, and um, it's a big part of what makes this one so special. And it sounds like there's uh, some comparisons to be made with the post-war um, joy that the young folks in the film are enjoying as uh, the post-pandemic joy we might be enjoying. Hopefully soon, I'm ready to get out there and do some swing dance mosh pitting. <laughs> <laughs> um, ben, I, I'm looking forward to that. I think I speak for all of us that we're looking forward to seeing you doing that. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's an interesting combination of um, frustration because, uh, you know, they're not 
able to find the employment that they dream of quickly enough or in a fully satisfactory way. Um, and again, it's just really good capturing that sort of immediate uh, post-collegiate moment of transitioning from youth to young adulthood. And even though there's there's frustrations in that arena and um, there's complications in the romantic life, there's also this great youthful joy of camaraderie uh, amongst the friends and um, and uh, enjoying life uh, aside from whatever the the immediate challenges might be. And yeah, I think we can all look forward to getting this pandemic in our rearview mirror and uh, returning to these kind of moments where we can all gather without a care in the world and, and in, enjoy one another's company. So basically, if Caro Diario is your vicarious trip to Italy, then, then Rendezvous in July can now be your vicarious trip to post-war Paris and the swinging jazz clubs of, of the era. Absolutely. And a good double bill, too. I haven't even done a double feature yet, so there it is. <laughs> Okay, so that's Rendezvous in Paris coming to us from Rialto Pictures, and all tickets for that one are $8. Next up is Carmilla, and Abby is going to tell us about this one. Carmilla is coming to us from Film Movement, um, and it debuted at the Edinburgh International Film Festival last year, and it's the first solo directorial effort of British filmmaker and curator Emily Harris, uh, who's previously worked as a co-director on several pretty independent small projects, uh, Borges and I from 2009, Paragraph from 2015, both directed with uh, Jonathan Bentevin, and then 2016's Love is Thicker Than Water, co-directed by Attie Young and, and starring Johnny Flynn. And Camilla is a big departure from these earlier films, both stylistically and thematically. And I think it really displays Emily Harris's talent as a highly skilled director finding her unique voice. And I think it promises bigger things to come. So the film is essentially a 19th century coming of age romance, which, which charts the relationship between a sheltered teen girl living in a remote estate in rural England, and a mysterious young woman who unexpectedly comes to the estate to recuperate after a carriage accident nearby. And here's where it gets even more interesting. The film is also a gothic lesbian vampire thriller based on James Sheridan Le Fanu's celebrated vampire novella, Camilla, from 1872, which, yes, predates Bram Stoker's Dracula by 26 years, and was very likely an influence on that novel. And it's uh, widely considered to be among the, the earliest works of, of vampire fiction and certainly among the first to feature a female vampire. So Emily Harris's take on the material tells the story of 15-year-old Lara, played by Hannah Ray, uh, who you might recognize as a regular on the TV series Broadchurch. And Lara is a curious but isolated young woman who lives on this vast country estate with no one for company but her father, who's played by Greg Wise, uh, probably best known for appearing in Ang Lee's 1995 Sense and Sensibility adaptation, and as Todd pointed out to me yesterday, as Emma Thompson's husband, um, and also the strict governess of the estate, Miss Fontaine, played by Jessica Rain, who's known for her work in British TV, and particularly as a series regular on, on Call the Midwife. 
And the film opens as Lara is excitedly counting down the days until a girl from a neighboring town is scheduled to come and stay at the estate with her for a few months. That is until the news of her would-be companion's sudden and mysterious illness arrives. And it seems that Lara will instead spend the coming months alone as usual. And Lara is devastated by the news and she falls into this depression, but everything changes when a nearby carriage crash brings with it the mysterious, glamorous Camilla, uh, played by the German-Turkish actress Devrim Lingnau uh, in her on-screen debut. And Camilla is brought to the estate to recover under the watchful eye of the town's doctor, who's played by Tobias Menzies, uh, who's in Game of Thrones and The Crown, very recognizable. And Lara and Camilla share an immediate and powerful connection. Uh, but there's also something a bit otherworldly about Camilla's presence in the house, something which manifests itself in Lara's increasingly vivid and sometimes quite disturbing dreams. Nevertheless, uh, Lara becomes increasingly enchanted by this strange and alluring visitor who arouses her intellectual curiosity and also awakens her burgeoning but repressed desires. Much to the dismay of Miss Fontaine, who views Camilla with increasing suspicion, even jealousy, particularly after she discovers a peculiar book at the site of the carriage accident, which has disturbing carnal illustrations that look suspiciously like the ones that um, Lara has been studying secretly uh, in her anatomy text. And all of this is happening at the same time that there are rumors of the supernatural swirling around in the local village. So this is a very effective candlelit coming of age fable, which blends the supernatural with a story of, of forbidden love and the tale of a young woman rallying against repression and against the fear inspired by female sexuality, intellectual awakening, and independence. And while you do have many of the tropes of the vampire genre here, although I will say that Emily Harris plays with and subverts some of these, you also have an excellent entry into the teen-oriented supernatural love story genre, which encompasses everything from the Twilight Saga to Thomas Alfredson's Let the Right One In and Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. And I think there's a, just a little bit of all of these in, in Camilla. Visually, the film is a real treat. Uh, contrast these shadowy, moody, candlelit interiors with beautiful sun-dappled daytime garden shots and also extreme close-ups of crawling insects and, and rotting fruits and human flesh. And for Call Me By Your Name fans, yes, I think there's a peach in there somewhere. The cinematography is by Michael Wood, who's perhaps best known for his documentary work. Uh, he did the recent 2009 film Pavarotti, as well as the 2016 film The Beatles' Eight Days a Week, which we screened and was a massive success. And he really does a fantastic job of capturing this gothic atmosphere using a color palette that oscillates between the bucolic daytime pastels and earth tones and the candlelit high contrast nighttime and dream sequences. And Emily Harris uses this to amp up the tension as Lara and Camilla gravitate towards one another, just as Miss Fontaine's suspicions increase. Uh, and of course, complementing the cinematography is the excellent art direction and production design and, and costume design, um, all of which add to the film's kind of sumptuous overall look. And I mentioned that Emily Harris is a curator in addition to being a filmmaker. She actually works for the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, which is a museum 
dedicated to the applied and decorative arts and design. Uh, so I think it's no surprise that she has a very keen and precise eye for the many visual elements that come together to create a specific sense of time and place and atmosphere. The costume design is by Academy Award winning costume designer John Bright, who won an Academy Award for 1985's A Room with a View, and who also did the costume design on Ang Lee's 1995 Sense and Sensibility, which I mentioned features Greg Wise, who plays Lara's father in this film. And there's also excellent art direction by Isabel Dunhill, who has two other films coming out this year, Rose Glass's St. Maud and Sarah Gavron's British coming-of-age drama Rocks. So Emily Harris is really giving this film's source material a new lease on life here, and she's maintaining the, the period setting and the gothic atmosphere while making it very contemporary and relevant and feminist, I would say. I'd call it Portrait of a Lady on Fire meets Twilight Saga, in the English countryside, flashes of Byzantium, a girl walks home alone at night, daughters of darkness, and even the love witch. So basically, I recommend it. Abby, I love all of the films that you just rattled off. And if that's the company this film is keeping, that's very good company indeed. But I have a, a question. This novel, uh, this, uh, this source material, has often it's often cited as an influence um, for the vampire genre and other gothic horror films. But how often has this actual novel been adapted to film either in whole or in part? That's a good question. And I mean, it's not on the level of Bram Stoker's Dracula, obviously. But Camilla has been adapted for, for a number of films, including early horror films like uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer's Vampire from 1932 and Universal Pictures' Dracula sequel, Dracula's Daughter from 1936. Um, and it was also deployed in some of the lesbian vampire exploitation films that were popular in the in the 60s and 70s, like Roger Vadim's Blood and Roses from 1960, uh, Jean Roland's The Shiver of Vampires from 1971, uh, as well as several hammer horror films from, from the early 70s, including The Vampire Lovers from 1970. But of course, Emily Harris is doing something much more subtle, shall we say, and feminist with the material here. Uh, and I think this film has a lot more in common with something, as I said, like Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire than it does with any of these uh, more exploitative renderings of, of the story that maybe we're more familiar with. And uh, Carmilla even makes an appearance in Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust, uh, the anime. It's part of the Vampire Hunter D series. So even an animation in, in an anime. So it sounds like the, the Carmilla story has been out there, even if it's not always by that name, occasionally by that name, and then some, some wide-ranging um, appearances and manifestations, as, as Ben was mentioning with the, the anime side, Vampire Hunter D. I, I am a little bit familiar with that one as well. But uh, it's good that there's uh, a proper adaptation of it now, and as Abby said, one that's um, maybe giving proper due to, to the source material. So that's Carmilla from Film Movement. Next up, uh, Shanghai Triad, the 1995 film uh, from director Zhang Yimou. And Ben is going to tell us about this one. So Shanghai Triad is coming to us from Film Movement. It is a new digital restoration. Uh, as Todd mentions, is from director Zhang Yimou. And the film is based on Li Zhao's 1994 novel, Rules of a Clan. And it follows the 14-year-old Shui Sheng over the course of seven days after he's invited to the big city from his rural home by his uncle Lu to work in the Tang crime family gang as a servant to the boss's mistress, Bijou, who is played here by Gong Li. 
from Raise the Red Lantern, Farewell My Concubine, Memoirs of a Geisha, many other films. And she's also featured in the upcoming Mulan live action adaptation. Um, so Shui Sheng is fresh off the boat in 1930s Shanghai. And while he's holed away in the back of a truck, he hears the sounds of an opium deal gone wrong that results in a bullet to the head for one of the rival gang members. And he's clearly in over his head um, from the very beginning. When he finally arrives at the palatial Tang estate, Lu wastes no time in introducing Shui Sheng to everyone and getting him started working as a servant to Bijou. Backstage at one of her performances uh, at a nightclub where she has a regular cabaret, he's put to the test and he fails. Uh, a simple test of lighting her cigarette. I mean, he doesn't know how to work the lighter, so he, he doesn't really know much about the, the big city life. But despite that, he is taken to live with her and... There he discovers that Bijou is having a relationship with uh, the triad's number two song behind the boss's back. And while the boss, Tang, is trying to calm tensions with a rival gang leader, Fat Yu, he's often spending late nights out playing Mahjong and getting home uh, at all hours of the night when Bijou is out of the house. Um, song and Bijou are conspiring to overthrow him. But the simmering friction between the two groups, uh, between the Tang clan and Fat Yu, quickly escalates, resulting in a bloodbath with Fat Yu's men ambushing the Tang estate. And the young Shui Sheng sees for the first time how this violence affects him personally. And now Tang, starting to suspect foul play, takes Bijou and Shui Sheng, uh, along with some of his trusted inner circle, to a small, heavily guarded island. But there, it's not long before everything kind of comes to a head and uh, the bodies start to pile up. This gangster film from the celebrated Chinese director would be his final film in a string of eight films with actress Gong Li, with whom he started his career with the film Red Sorghum. And during the filming of Shanghai Triad, Gong Li decided to end their relationship, uh, not only professionally, but personally. And because of that, the two failed to collaborate again until the 2006 Wuxia film Curse of the Golden Flower. But you can tell how well their working relationship helped the performance and helped the film be tailored to Gong Li. Because although the film is set up as the story of Shui Sheng, this is really the story of Gong Li. And uh, her relationship to Shui Sheng is, of course, important, but she's the lead here, front and center. Uh, the film is also a good hinge film in that it shows the difference between Zhang's early films and his later films. Uh, if you know Zhang Yimou, you might know him for some of his wuxia films for, uh, as I mentioned, Curse of the Golden Flower and 2002's Hero or House of Flying Daggers. Um, he also, of course, directed Raise the Red Lantern, which is a film from his earlier period where he was focusing on smaller stories, uh, but more politically oriented things. And in fact, the film that he made immediately before this was banned in China, and he decided to make a gangster film in order to make sure that this film would play in his home country. And, and it did. It was successful in, in that regard. Uh, the film, as Abby mentioned at the top, was nominated for both the Golden Globe and an Oscar. Uh, but Zhang is a very celebrated filmmaker who has won top prize at both Venice and Berlin and many awards at many other festivals and many other accolades. Uh, this is a great one to catch up with if you've never seen it or to revisit in this nice new restoration. Highly recommend Shanghai Triad in our virtual screening room. Ben, you had talked about this one being kind of a hinge film in Yimou's uh, filmmaking 
uh, career in terms of his uh, his approach and his style between the earlier uh, kind of intimate dramas and the later big budget spectacles. But in your opinion, where where would you rank this one for his uh, overall film output? Um, I think this one would rank pretty high. Uh, it's it's true, as I mentioned, as as you touched upon, that it's a hinge film, so it kind of has a little bit of both of those elements of the the smaller, more intimate um, country set films and the big epics. There's a lot of really good production design for 1930 Shanghai, and uh, it really is worth watching. Um, this new restoration looks really nice. Um, and I've seen plenty of his films, and this was the first time for me watching this one, and. Uh, I was surprised by, by just how great it is, but um, I shouldn't have been. I mean, he really was working at the top of his form at this time. And again, I highly recommend other people check it out if they haven't. Gong Li is so good in this film, Ben. And as you mentioned, the film really focuses on her character. And for some reason, I was kind of surprised by that. But she is really the one who stands out in this otherwise male-dominated realm of the criminal underworld. And, and she does a great job also of allowing us to empathize with uh, what is actually a pretty unlikable character at times. Yeah, she gets pretty nasty, especially with the, you know, 14-year-old kid. Um, <laughs> but you, you do sympathize with her, um, especially by the end, you really do uh, sympathize with her character. And yeah, Gong Li is great. She's always really good. Um, and as I mentioned, I think this being the final collaboration with, uh, with Shang here at, at they really had a good working relationship and it shows. Okay, so that's Shanghai Triad coming out uh, on the occasion of its 25th anniversary from Film Movement Classics. Next up is the 2002 film Bungalow from German filmmaker Ulrich Kohler. And Abby is going to tell us about this one. I am another restoration. Uh, Bungalow's coming to us actually in a 4K restoration from Grasshopper Film. Um, it had its world premiere at the 2002 Berlin International Film Festival before it went on to screen at festivals around the world, announcing its young director, Ulrich Koller, then just 33, I think, as a major talent. And his film is a major work of the Berlin School, uh, which is, of course, a quite loosely associated group of German auteurs, which emerged in the mid-90s in the wake of Germany's unification. Uh, and includes filmmakers like Christian Petzold, Maren Ade, Thomas Arslan, and Angela Schenelak, among, among many others. And so now, thanks to Grasshopper Films, this relatively unknown work of the Berlin School is being released uh, for the first time in, in the US. So Bungalow was Ulrich Koller's first feature film. And in the two decades since, he has directed four more films. Windows on a Monday from 2006, Sleeping Sickness from 2011, In My Room from 2018, which we actually screened in the 2018 AFI European Union Film Showcase. And then his most recent film, A Voluntary War, which he co-directed and which debuted at the Locarno Film Festival in 2019. And while Collar is perhaps one of the less well-known figures of the Berlin School and certainly one of its most loosely associated members, his films reflect many of the aesthetic and thematic traits that have come to be 
connected with the movement. Uh, his films explore ideas of alienation, the search for new identities. He looks at characters who are in conflict with, with their surroundings and with those around them, uh, all in this slow burn, restrained, deceptively low-key manner that rejects overt dramatization in favor of masterfully observed, subtle performances and often a wry, deadpan sense of humor. So Bungalow is a coming-of-age tale about a 19-year-old German soldier named Paul, played by Lenny Burmeister, in his debut role. He has been in a few films since, but he's actually better known as a professional skateboarder, and we do get to see him skate in the film. And at the start of the film, Paul, seemingly completely bored with his life in the army, decides on a whim to go AWOL, simply failing to get back into the truck when his unit stops at a Burger King on the way back to base. And he's pretty much inadvertently, subsequently, a deserter on the run. Uh, but the only problem is Paul doesn't really have a plan or anywhere in particular to run to. And so he sets off on a kind of aimless journey, which eventually lands him back at his family's summer bungalow in, in the suburbs, where he's forced to break in since no one is around. And once he's there, he quickly settles into his childhood bedroom. He's looking forward to some quiet, responsibility-free time, uh, only to be interrupted first by his ex-girlfriend, and then, more annoyingly, by his older brother, Max, who's played by uh, David Streiso, uh, seen recently, actually, in Angela Schenelak's I Was at Home But. Um, and Max is there with his Danish actress girlfriend, Line, uh, played by the beloved Danish actress, uh, Trini Dierholm, uh, who is probably best known to US audiences for her role in Suzanne Beer's 2011 Oscar winner, In a Better World. And Paul, in a very moody teen way, is initially very irritated by the presence of his big brother and his big brother's worldly girlfriend. He has to lie to them about why he's at home. He has to deal with his brother's passive aggressive bullying. But over the course of a few lazy, hot summer days um, in which the film takes place, Paul develops a slightly unhealthy obsession with Lene as someone who seems to be kind of everything he's not. She's free and she's worldly and she's glamorous and she's grown up. And as Paul continues evading his responsibilities, lazing by the pool and avoiding phone calls from the army and his parents, uh, he awkwardly starts to pursue Lene, uh, who kind of unintentionally or, or maybe not leads him on and indulges his self-pity and his aimless following. And you get the sense that Paul's fixation on Lene has much more to do with his boredom and this self-destructive desire he has to get at his brother and disrupt the lives of everyone around him than it does with a, with a genuine affection or attraction. Although it is easy to see why, why Lene, as this beautiful, accomplished, exotic outsider ends up at the center of this slightly odd love triangle between two brothers. Uh, and of course, things could get very tragic and Shakespearean from here, but Cola totally upends that expectation with this kind of naturalistic, detached, wry, almost comic treatment of the situation and the at times cringeworthily humorous interactions that that occur between the central characters. So Bungalow is a very unconventional coming-of-age narrative, um, and it offers an examination of youthful alienation, frustrated masculinity, and familial estrangement, while also refusing to over-dramatize the situation as Paul's presence kind of destabilizes the lives of everyone around him. 
And it's great to be able to see this film in a new restoration as well, because it looks fantastic. And cinematographer Patrick Orth, who worked with Collar on all of his subsequent films, and was also the cinematographer on Marin Ade's Tony Erdman from 2016, is a master of, of framing and composition. And he also effectively manages to convey simultaneously both a sense of claustrophobia and also a sense of alienation and, and distance through the use of his, his camera. And the final long shot of the film, by the way, which was done in a single take, several minutes long, is quite a brilliant way to, to end the film. And obviously I'm not going to spoil it, but be watching for it. It's pretty good. So if you're looking to explore the early work of one of Germany's most interesting and maybe underrated contemporary filmmakers, and for an astute judgment-free depiction of youth in all its selfish and awkward intricacies, um, then I highly recommend Bungalow. And I'd also suggest seeking out Collar's 2018 film In My Room, which I think could be considered a spiritual sequel to Bungalow. And it's about a drifting man, slightly older this time, 40-something, who unexpectedly has to deal with the unwelcome freedom and boredom brought on by, yes, the apocalypse. So it's a good one. And uh it would be a great double feature. Yeah, uh, and maybe another one with uh, an odd sort of timeliness to, to watch now. Uh, I'm really looking forward to watching this one because I have some catching up to do with Ulrich Kohler. But uh, for me, the main selling point is, of course, Trina Deerholm, uh, who I think is an outstanding actress and I've been enjoying her work going back uh, for a long time now. Uh, just very quickly, uh, just rat off a few things that our, our listeners might uh, know her from or may want to jot down to seek out themselves. But going all the way back 20 odd years ago, uh, she was uh, among the cast of The Celebration from Thomas Vinterberg, a really big film in contemporary Danish cinema and the whole dogma moment. Uh, terrific in that. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, um, a few years later on, Suzanne Beer's Oscar winner in A Better World. Uh, she's part of the terrific ensemble in A Royal Affair, uh, one of Denmark's biggest films of all time, uh, and the one that also happened to launch uh, Alicia Vikander into stardom, uh, Love is All You Need, uh, again with Vinterberg in the Commune, a film called You Disappear that we featured in our EU showcase a couple of years back, uh, Nico, 1988, and very recently Becoming Astrid, a terrific film about the author Astrid Lindgren, author of Pippi Longstocking, among other beloved children's books. So uh, the fact that this is a, a dear home performance from a ways back that's now, now available to see, I am very much looking forward to checking this out. Yeah, Deerholm is great in this role, uh, playing this kind of glamorous outsider character from a world far away who represents everything that Paul feels he's missing in his life. And Ulrich Koller specifically decided to cast a non-German actress in the role for that very reason. Uh, and he felt that making it a Danish character would kind of be the perfect nationality um, because it would be kind of neutral uh, in a way that casting, say, a French or Swedish actress might not be. Both of those may have unique connotations that, that go along with them. Uh, and so naturally, Deerholm, as one of Denmark's then up-and-coming young actresses, was, was the ideal choice, and it, it worked out well. And we also have another star performance here from uh, Lenny Burmeister, that, uh, someone who we love to hate, similar to Shanghai Triad and Gong Li. Yeah, he's kind of a 
detestable character, Paul, but you know, by the end, you can't, you kind of like him and empathize with him. And yeah, Lenny, Lenny Burmester does a, a great job and he's also very good at skateboarding. I have to say, uh, he actually won the best actor prize at the, uh, Buenos Aires film festival, uh, that, that year. So, um, he hasn't done much since as I, as I mentioned, but, uh, he's, he's really good in this. But he's still out there skating, of course. Oh yeah, he's he's a he's a veteran of the skateboard scene in Germany. Okay, so again, that's Bungalow out in a new 4K restoration from Grasshopper Film. And the fifth and final film that we're opening this week is the 1961 comedy Mr. Topaz from Film Movement Classics. This film is based on a play by Marcel Pagnol. Pagnol, of course, playwright, filmmaker, and novelist, one of the great creative forces in 20th century French culture. Pagnol most famously associated with his trio of plays and the films based on them, known as the Marseille trilogy of Fanny, Marius, and César. Pagnol produced and or directed various film versions of his various plays. And in the case of Topaz, he directed not one but two film versions, the first in 1936 and the second in 1951, just 15 years later. And that later version starred the comedy great Fernandel. There was another French version of Topaz uh, made, a film version, made in 1933. And in that same year, uh, there was also a Hollywood version of Topaz. That one starred John Barrymore and Myrna Loy. So for a time, and at the time in 1961, when this British version comes along, Topaz would have been a very well-known property uh, with people, you know, most likely recalling previous versions that were not, that were done not that long back. Uh, it's just strange from this remove uh, to realize how seemingly forgotten the, the play and the various film versions are today. Here, Peter Sellers plays Mr. Topaz, a dedicated school teacher who pines for his colleague, Miss Mouche, played by Billy Whitelaw, who's also the daughter of his headmaster, Monsieur Mouche, played by Leo McCarn. Sellers is as poor as a church mouse in terms of very modest wages he earns as a school teacher with a little bit of tutoring on the side, and lodges with his teaching colleague, Tamise, played by Michael Guff. And Tamise is an interesting character who takes great vicarious interest in Sellers' infatuation with Miss Mouche and his extremely timorous and tentative wooing of her uh, with the, the married Tamise uh, taking on the position of sort of an older brother and, and giving him some, some coaching. Uh, but it's quite clear as, as the two are conversing that uh, Tamise maybe doesn't have that much experience himself and is uh, largely uh, attempting to, to uh, live out vicariously through, through Sellers' uh, budding romance with Miss Moosh. But Topaz's career as a school teacher takes a bad turn when one day he is summoned to the headmaster's office and asked to fix the grade of one of his duller students, whose grandmother happens to be a baroness, played by the great Martita Hunt, best known for her unforgettable performance as Miss Havisham in David Lean's 1946 adaptation of Dickens' Great Expectations. Topaz is put on the spot in an audience in the headmaster's office, with the Baroness, asked to change the grade, a move urged on by the hypocritical Moosh. But even as the two threaten Topaz with ruin, he continues to refuse to change the grade, which leads to the unceremonious firing of the hardworking teacher. But here fate deals Topaz an unexpected card. Music hall singer Susie Courtois, played by Nadia Gray, whose child Topaz tutors, convinces her lover, the thoroughly corrupt city council member Castel Benac, 
played by Herbert Lom. Of course, Lom and Sellers will always be paired together for the Pink Panther movies with Sellers Inspector Clouseau opposite his foil, Commissioner Dreyfus. With Binoc hiring Topaz as the patsy front for a shell company created with the express purpose of kicking funds back to Binoc on a lucrative street sweeping contract. For a time, Binoc benefits from Topaz's naive, unquestioning compliance. But over time, Topaz wises up to the scheme and resolves to outmaneuver those who have taken advantage of him. While it's satisfying to see Topaz outcon the cons, it's also tragic in that he has gone way beyond just losing his innocence to full-on cynicism. So for a film that is mostly a gentle comedy, it has a surprisingly bitter resolution. Mr. Topaz represents an unusual landmark in the career of star Peter Sellers. It represents his only directorial credit. It came at a vital moment in his career. This is comes out in 1961. At this point, he's had uh, tremendous success, first on The Goon Show uh, on radio, beginning in very early 1950s. And all through the 50s, he appears in various British television and feature film comedies, including releasing several hit comedy LPs in the latter part of the decade. And he's at this point, right on the cusp of breakout international stardom. Uh, a year later, he plays Claire Quilty for Stanley Kubrick in Lolita, 1962. And the two would work again very soon after that, in 1964, for the all-time classic Dr. Strangelove, probably the single greatest showcase in films for Sellers' talent and taste for protean multi-part playing with the three separate characters that he plays in that film. And in between the two Kubrick films, his, of course, he has his career-changing casting as Inspector Clouseau uh, for Blake Edwards in 1963's The Pink Panther, which launches the Pink Panther franchise. In Mr. Topaz, Sellers plays, for the most part, straight and restrained through the majority of the film as this naive and repressed character, Mr. Topaz, allowing himself just a tiny bit of physical comedy. And in the third act, uh, he does, in fact, concoct a, really a, a completely new interpretation of Topaz. And around him is a terrific comedic cast. Herbert Lom, I already mentioned, uh, in addition to working with Sellers here and in various Pink Panther films. He's also opposite Sellers in Alexander McKendrick's The Lady Killers from a few years before this in support of star Alec Guinness. Nadia Gray uh, as Susie Courtois, very likable here. She also sings a musical number called I Like Money, which somehow became the name for the U.S. release of this film. Gray didn't have a big movie career, uh, but just the year before that, she did have a part in Fellini's La Dolce Vita. The great Leo McCurran as Monsieur Mouche, probably best associated with his uh, long-running role as Horace Rumpel, Rumpel of the Bailey, uh, which many of us in the U.S. would see on PBS. It's also a few years later in the 60s, he appears in A Man for All Seasons. And then looking ahead to the 80s, he's in the great cult classic Lady Hawk. Uh, also, Michael Guff, very funny as Tamise, best known for a number of Hammer Horror films throughout the 60s. And then later on in his career, Alfred Pennyworth, Bruce Wayne's butler in the Tim Burton Batman films. And as Mademoiselle Mouche, Billy Whitelaw, very good in this film. And for many, she'll always be associated with the demonic nanny, Mrs. Baylock in The, the Omen from 1976. Leo McKern also has a part in The Omen. 
One thing I was surprised about when I first got to see the film, it's in widescreen uh, cinemascope. So it has beautiful widescreen cinematography and beautiful sets. It may ultimately be more of a curio than a classic, but if you're a fan of Peter Sellers and of British comedy, you owe it to yourself to check out Mr. Topaz. We're really lucky to be able to see this film finally. Uh, I think there are only three viable remaining prints of the film. Uh, and those include Peter Sellers' own print, which was donated after his death to the to the BFI National Archive, and then two prints that they already had in, in their collection. And it's these three prints that constituted the, the source material for this restoration. So we're we're very lucky to be able to to see it. Yeah, we are absolutely. Um, and as far as I can tell, it's just one of those uh, films that kind of went down a wormhole. I suspect that uh, the the rights situation had some complications and uh it's wonderful that the bfi has um taken it on as a restoration project and that uh, film movement's making it available for viewers in the u.s and uh, as a peter sellers fan which who isn't um i'm looking forward to checking it out also interesting to note that the song you mentioned and the title of the film in the u.s i like money was uh, written by george martin yeah and and when you see the number and and hear the song you get the impression it's it's just a little ditty that was probably knocked out really fast. It serves the role of of uh, you know having Susie Courtois do a number, and it's just a funny, silly little song. Nothing too too complicated about it. Um, again, very strange that uh, that became the title, um, at least at least for the release that took place in the in the U.S. But on the George Martin side, I I noted uh, recently in d- doing a little bit of research about the film that uh, uh, George Martin also produced uh, at least some of the comedy LPs that Sellers did. So I'm guessing that uh, this was just a continuation of their uh, friendship and collaboration. Okay, so again, that's Mr. Topaz, uh, New Restoration. And that's coming to us from Film Movement Classics. And that wraps up what's new this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room. Taking a quick look at other films that are also now playing, we have The Tobacconist. Uh, As Abby mentioned at the top of the pod, this is the German-Austrian co-production historical drama based on the novel by Robert Seetaler. And it features the late Bruno Ganz in one of his final roles, uh, here playing Sigmund Freud. And also continuing to hold strong, we have A White White Day, Hilnir Palmason's award-winning psychodrama from Iceland, and The Last Tree, Shola Amu's acclaimed British-Nigerian coming-of-age tale. Also continuing this week, we have three excellent documentaries, Ai Weiwei, Yours Truly, about the iconic Chinese artist Ai Weiwei and his monumental art installation on, on Alcatraz Island, and John Lewis, Good Trouble, Dawn Porter's new documentary about Georgia Congressman John Lewis and his 60-plus years of, of activism, and then Capital in the 21st Century, Justin Pemberton's documentary based on Thomas Piketty's landmark 2013 economics best which Todd mentioned at the top of the pod is still going strong. And also continuing is We Are Little Zombies. This is a colorful and kaleidoscopic story of four Japanese orphans who form a rock band to process their grief after their parents pass, and they become an overnight viral sensation. And also House of Hummingbird. This is a beautifully crafted lyrical coming-of-age tale from debut writer-director Bora Kim, set in 1994, Seoul, Korea. And to round out uh, the rest of our top performers currently in the virtual screening room, we have The Audition, an intense psychological thriller written and directed by Ina Weissa, starring 
Nina Haas as an obsessively driven violin teacher. That film, German, of course, and we also have two from Italy, uh, set in Italy at least. So first up is Tommaso. This is Abel Ferrara's semi-autobiographical tale about an American expat filmmaker living in Rome and struggling with a late midlife crisis, here played by Willem Dafoe. And Caro Diario, Nanny Moretti's triptych of comedic tales from 1993, for which he won the prize for Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival. And you can find all of the titles we just discussed, plus many more, on our website, afi.com silver. There you'll be able to find and access the film's screening links, which you can also find in our e-blasts and social media posts. Your screening at home helps support AFI Silver during our temporary closure. Thank you for your support. Now, in addition to discussing everything available to view in our virtual screening room, each week we also like to discuss some other ideas for films you can view at home. And this week, we're choosing to discuss a beloved film that will mark its 25th anniversary this weekend. And that's Amy Heckerling's high school comedy classic, Clueless, which was released 25 years ago this Sunday, July 19. And Clueless is very much a classic, one of the most beloved films of the 1990s, much rewatched and much quoted. And I was reading a recent Huffington Post article about Clueless's 25th anniversary this week. And I think Matthew Jacobs, the writer, uh, sums up this universal and enduring appeal of the, of the film really well. So I'll just quote him because he says it better than, than I can. So what followed in Cher Horowitz's wake was arguably the greatest teen movie crest in Hollywood history, lasting through the mid-2000s and making Clueless a phenomenon that united multiple generations. It was written and directed by a boomer, marketed to Gen X, made a contemporary classic by millennials, and transformed into a point of nostalgia by Gen Z. Um, so yeah, this is so true. Um, I was a teenager when the film came out and I've watched it at various different ages since then and, you know, find something to love and appreciate more each time um, and to see other another generation discovering the film all over again is is brilliant. And I've seen lots of articles recently about Gen Z making fun of millennials and millennials roasting boomers and everyone forgetting to mention Gen X, although we all know that they're the best generation. Um, so maybe this film is the one thing that we can all agree on, uh, clueless, bringing you the solution to intergenerational conflict since 1995. Uh, and for me, the film is really uh, one of my favorites, one of my all-time favorites uh, that I saw I think it's kind of a pattern on the podcast. I talk about films I've seen way too young, but this one I saw when I was eight years old and had just broken my shoulder and collarbone um, in a sledding accident and was out of school for two weeks. Uh, and I was able to pick a film from the video store. I picked this one. I don't, I have no idea why an eight-year-old boy I was picking Clueless, but um, I watched it, I think at least five times uh, on the VHS tape and most of it probably went over my head. Um, I know definitely having rewatched it since that, uh, as Abby mentioned, they, every time you kind of get something new out of it. And I was not getting all of the, all of the details um, the first time around, that's for sure. But you obviously had very good taste from it from a young age, Ben. I mean, that's, that's the answer. That's why you're watching it at, at age eight, of course. Yeah. A um, very discerning cinephile at age yes, eight. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I mean, of course, part of the film's timelessness 
comes from the fact that it's based on Jane Austen's timeless classic 1816 novel, Emma. Um, but I'm pretty sure that Jane Austen never would have imagined that her impeccable comedy of manners would be turned into a genre-defining satire about super rich teenagers going to school in, in Beverly Hills in the 90s. And she definitely wouldn't have imagined that this, this comedy masterpiece would start life as a TV pilot, which Clueless did. Uh, it was a TV pilot called No Worries about a wealthy young woman who has no worries, yeah, uh, and sees the world kind of exclusively through rose-tinted glasses. And the pilot was commissioned by 20th Century Fox, after the success of Heckling's 1982 smash hit, Fast Times at Richmond High, and the TV show that followed. Um, but she was actually reluctant to do another teen-focused piece at the time, and she agreed to write the pilot on the condition that she could make fun of the, of the teenagers in it, which, of course, she did. Um, and 20th Century Fox apparently didn't like the pilot at all, and Heckling's agent saw the script and said, actually, this is way too good for television. And he suggested that she rewrite it as a feature, which Heckling did. This time incorporating aspects of Jane Austen's Emma. She realized the character she'd been writing, the one who sees the world through rose-colored glasses, was like Jane Austen's character Emma. And of course, the character became the one and only Cher Horowitz. Uh, 20th Century bought the script, but they kept requesting rewrites uh, with fewer women involved because apparently having not one, not two, but three prominent female characters was way too many for them. Uh, and they weren't really sure what to make of the script in, in general. It wasn't like a raunchy high school comedy. It wasn't a broad male-focused blockbuster comedy like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or Dumb and Dumb or something like that. And it wasn't really a rom-com either. Um, and so they ended up kind of dropping dropping the film, putting it in turnaround, the dreaded, the dreaded term for anyone with a film in development. And they left it at that. Um, but it was actually uh, Hollywood producer Scott Rudin who, who saw the script and he thought, that there was something there and he shopped it around to various studios and he sparked a bidding war which Paramount won um, and they immediately gave the film a green light um, and I think landing with Paramount as opposed to 20th Century Fox ended up being a massive benefit to the film's commercial success because Paramount shared its parent company Viacom with MTV which was of course a perfect match in terms of target audience for the film and, and the film was heavily advertised on, on MTV and Alicia Silverstone who plays Cher made an appearance at the 1995 MTV Movie Awards to promote the film and they did a launch party on, on MTV before, before the film came out and I, I have to wonder what Jane Austen would, would make of all of this. Um, but anyway, for, for all these, these synergies that happened to, to make the film the success it is, I, I think ultimately it was and is so successful because of the, the, the sheer brilliance of, of Heckling's script, which is as near perfect as a screenplay can be. Um, she managed to preserve the, the satirical wit of Austen's novels, uh, but she also simultaneously made it completely new in a way that captured the spirit of its generation, but also somehow generations to come. And I put that down to Heckling's natural talent and her imagination, but also to the depth of, of her research, particularly in, in writing the dialogue, which is, of course, all amazing and laugh out loud funny to this day, even on a millionth viewing. Um, you know, I'll still laugh at all of the film's zingers, which come like every five seconds. So I'm basically laughing all the way through. 
And Abby, just to follow up on Heckerling's career and, and where she was uh, in 1995 when Clueless came out. So she had burst onto the scene with another high school comedy back in 1982, which you mentioned, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, canonical 80s film and high school comedy. So first of all, right off the bat, understand Amy Heckerling is the director on not only arguably the greatest 80s teen comedy, but the greatest 90s teen comedy. That's quite a legacy. Uh, And Fast Times also, uh, beyond being brilliant and surprising uh, in its depth for a high school set comedy, had uh, a wonderful ensemble cast and and launched the careers of actors like Sean Penn and Jennifer Jason Leigh, and a bit buried down in the credits, but it is one of his earliest credits, Nicolas Cage. Heckling goes on to direct National Lampoon's European Vacation, uh, which did very well. And for those of of you around in the 80s, uh, also recall being constantly on cable television. And then towards the end of the 80s, the Talking Baby Pictures, Look Who's Talking, followed up immediately in 1990 with Look Who's Talking 2, John Travolta, Kirstie Alley, and Talking Babies, of course. All right, maybe not considered the pinnacle of comedy, but they were hugely, hugely successful money-making machines. Uh, and then a few years later, uh, following this you know, really big, successful decade of directing feature film comedies, and uh, as, as Abby also mentioned, some television adaptations associated with them. Both Fast Times had a, a, a TV spinoff and the, and the Look Who's Talking films did too. Uh, and then Clueless, as Abby just explained, uh, starts off as TV, then gets uh, turned around and, and reconceived uh, into the film it became. Uh, and uh, huge, hugely successful, embraced at the time by both critics and audiences, um, but as the reason we're talking about it now, of course, is because it's it's never let up. It's uh, it's as fresh now as as it was when it came out 25 years ago. And just a quick, quick discussion of Heckerling's subsequent career, because you would think with all of that success that it would carry on in subsequent years on the feature film side. And sadly, it, it doesn't really. Um, she has a film with uh, Jason Biggs and Mina Suvari in 2000 called Loser. Both of them, of course, featured in very successful films from around that time. But it's it's a bomb. It does not work out. It does not connect with audiences. And it's a, quite a while before she directs a feature film again. And, and that film was uh, eventually seven years later. So in 2007, she has a film called I Could Never Be Your Woman with Michelle Pfeiffer and Paul Rudd. Uh, we'll be discussing Paul Rudd more a little bit further on uh, as far as the great cast of Clueless. Uh, Clueless being his pretty much his first feature film credit. On paper, that sounds like a a fantastic pairing, 2007. But this film, uh, very controversially, um, was denied a proper theatrical release and and kind of just uh, thrown out the the back door into um, an indifferent uh, direct-to-video release by its studio, MGM. Um, And uh, boy, did they get that wrong. Uh, Definitely something to to seek out. um, But... Uh, the damage was done, and um, it's it's been a, it was a while after that before Hackerling had another feature film come out. Uh, but getting back to Clueless, um, the 25th anniversary celebrating film, uh, Hackerling, of course, great directing, great script, but uh, not enough can be said about the wonderful cast here, starring Alicia Silverstone, who was really mostly known at the time as being kind of the Aerosmith uh, video girl. She was in a bunch of Aerosmith music videos and some TV and things, but hadn't really had a starring role. And this film really catapulted her into huge superstardom. 
1995. And she's brilliant in the role, really bright, and just carries the film uh, as if she acted all her life and, you know, all her very young life. When she, when the film was uh, made, she might've been 17, 18 at, at the oldest. So um, a, just a commanding performance, especially for someone of that age. Um, and to get a sense of what that's like, uh, if you haven't seen the film somehow, if you aren't familiar with the film Clueless, uh, we'll, we'll play you a clip from uh, the beginning of the film where Cher is introducing her best friend, Dion, and uh, picking her up for school. Here's where Dion lives. She's my friend because we both know what it's like to have people be jealous of us. Girlfriend. And I must give her snaps for her courageous fashion efforts. Hey, Cher. Dion and I were both named after great singers of the past who now do infomercials. And of course, Dion played by Stacey Dash, you heard in that clip. Um, but Alicia Silverstone, of course, has a wonderful supporting cast uh, beside her uh, with some of the smaller roles, including Wallace Shawn and Twink Kaplan, who uh, she sets up, uh, two of the teachers in the film, and who she works to set up uh, along with Dee. And after she does that, goes on to her real project. And the new student in town, Ty, played by Brittany Murphy, this would be one of her early roles, too, uh, alongside Lisa Silverstone. She was one year younger than her. Um, and a, a brilliant performance here with a, an accented role, a very naive character who gains confidence throughout the film and becomes uh, the popular girl, uh, eclipsing Cher's popularity even uh, as an, a brand new student and after she gets a makeover from Cher and Dee. And to get a better idea of the, the character uh, that Brittany Murphy plays, Ty, um, and just an idea of the rest of the cast and kind of what you have in store for the film. Early on, we right after the uh, makeover happens, uh, we see Cher introducing Ty to the campus and the various social strata of the school. So we'll listen to that clip now. So we decided to show Ty the ropes at Bronson Alcott High School. That is Alana's group over there. They do the TV station. They think that's the most important thing on earth. And that's the Persian Mafia. You can't hang with them unless you own a BMW. And there's Elton in the white vest. And all the most popular boys in the school. Including my boyfriend, ain't he cute? Yeah. If you make the decision to date a high school boy, they are the only acceptable ones. Cher, which one of them's your boyfriend? Ask F. Cher's got attitude about high school boys. <sighs> it's a personal choice every woman has got to make for herself. Woman, yeah. let me find out. Murray, I have asked you repeatedly not to call me woman. Excuse me, Miss Dion. Thank you. Okay, but street slang is an increasingly valid form of expression. Most of the feminine pronouns do have mocking, but not necessarily misogynistic undertone. You guys talk like grown-ups. Oh, well, this is a really good school. And of course, you get to hear all the different, uh, hear about all the different groups in the school. And in the clip, we're introduced to uh, Murray, Dee's boyfriend, played by Donald Faison, who most people would know from Scrubs, if you would know from this film, where he uh, co-starred alongside Zach Braff in the entire series as his best friend. Um, but he's also great in this film, very funny and Again, very young, as, as is the whole cast. And also among that uh, great young cast, Reckon Meyer as the Lodi character, Travis Birkenstock, Jeremy Sisto as Elton, and Justin Walker as Christian, uh, who are alternately uh, possible romantic interests for Cher. 
and, and Breck and Meyer, uh, Ty's original and ultimate love interest. But uh, chief among the young cast on the male side uh, that bears mention is, of course, the very young Mr. Paul Rudd, uh, here making, again, pretty much his feature film debut in 1995. He had done some television work prior to that. And all the way back there, 25 years ago, all of that Paul Rudd goodness and likability is there and on display. And um, it's it's not a surprise that eventually he got to put that to, to great use across a, a range of comedies, uh, including rom-coms, including gross-out comedies, including... Uh, the genre unto himself that is Judd Apatow comedies. Uh, so just uh, a few of the highlights along the way. He's featured prominently in, of course, Anchorman, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, This Is The End, Role Models, the cult classic Wet Hot American Summer, and, of course, uh, paying the big bills, his role as Ant-Man across a string of Marvel Cinematic Universe titles. And then just one more note about the cast, not the young side of it, but as Cher's dad, Dan Hedaya, I think is just wonderful, really great character actor, and one who's had a tremendous career uh, turning up uh, in, well, over well over 100 films at this point, but um, best remembered for Coen Brothers' Blood Simple, uh, Mulholland Drive, David Lynch, The Usual Suspects, and uh, another film, another comedy from the 90s, um, not that well known, but I really enjoyed it and I encourage you to, to seek it out. It's called Dick, as in Tricky Dick Dixon. And in that, uh, Nixon's crimes are, if I remember correctly, exposed um, by crusading young teenagers played by very young Michelle Williams and Kirsten Dunst. And so, yeah, let's bring it back to Cher Horowitz and Alicia Silverstone in what is perhaps one of my favorite little bits in the film right here. Get out on the ground, face down. Come on! Oh no, you don't understand. This is an Alaya. An Alaya? It's like a totally important designer. And I will totally shoot you in the head. Get out! Good. Good. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, count to a hundred. Thank you. One. All right, so that's uh, Cher Horowitz after she has dropped all the way out in Sun Valley and uh, has her designer dress ruined in a, in a serious hold-up situation. And of course, fashion is this like totally important part of Clueless, uh, but not just in terms of the plot. Uh, the film's costume design is one of the many factors that makes it so so iconic and, and has also been the inspiration for millions, literally millions of Halloween costumes since, since 1995. And the film's look and particularly its costume design was just another of the many ways in which Heckling and her team were so successful and imaginative in, in world building and in creating this kind of epic team fantasia, which has remained stylish for 25 years now. Uh, so apparently in researching the film and, and its costumes, Heckling and her costume designer, Mona May, visited LA high schools to get a sense of what teens were wearing at the time. And they were kind of dismayed by the results and the prevalence of the, the grunge look and the abundance of, of flannel and baggy jeans and t-shirts and weirdly mismatched layers and dark colors. 
for reference, maybe see my so-called life or, or reality bites for that side of it. Um, and this was not the look that Heckling and, and May wanted for the film at all. They wanted something more fun, more brightly colored, more outrageous to fit this kind of bubblegum tinged teen fantasy world that they, they were creating. And so absent finding any precise inspiration in contemporary fashion, they had to look to other sources to create the look of the film and then kind of blend that with the grunge look that they saw in high schools at the time. And so like the over the knee socks, for example, were apparently inspired by the look of rolled down sockings worn by 1920s silent film stars and by Liza Minnelli's stockinged look in Cabaret. Um, another integral accessory, the outlandish hats, particularly worn by Dee, were apparently inspired by the oversized Dr. Zeus type hats that had become part of 90s rave culture and fashion at the time. Uh, and of course, we have to talk about plaid and tartan, which are both key patterns for the film's aesthetic. And I read somewhere that there are actually 53 different types of tartan and plaid in the film. Uh, the iconic yellow plaid outfit that Cher wears at the start of the film was in fact a designer piece created by French fashion world Enfant Terrible, Jean-Paul Gaultier, uh, a designer known for his very colorful, very unconventional style, and of course for his, his love of tartan and for single-handedly bringing back the kilt for men in, in the 80s. And while you might think that with all this designer wear, the film's costuming budget would be off the charts, the biggest expense was actually this one Jean-Paul Gaultier piece that Cher wears at the start of the film. And in fact, costume designer Mona May had a budget of just $200,000 to work with. And, and so many of the film's outfits were actually created from thrift store finds. And in fact, the black and white plaid suit that Dee wears to complement Cher's yellow ensemble at the beginning was created entirely by Mona May from various thrift store bargains, as, as were several of her hats, actually. And one more point about fashion in the film. Paul Rudd apparently wore a lot of his own clothes for the role of Josh. And, and I feel like he's still wearing the same clothes to this day. But anyway, the, the film's style was created from this amalgam of various influences and, and sources that came together to make something completely new and unique is another of the things that makes the film's style endure. It's somehow really timeless and also this kind of weird time capsule that doesn't exactly replicate the time that it was representing. And speaking of the fashion in the film, um, you spoke a lot about the, the fashion of uh, the women in the film, but um, just to briefly uh, touch on the book of uh, Justin Walker's character, Christian, um, he very much has a, a 50s style and um, there's even a scene where uh, Cher's dad says, uh, I think it's something like uh, the death of Sammy Davis opened up a spot in the Rat Pack for you. you know, some, something to that effect. Really funny line, but I mention it only because uh, that sort of style, that sort of 50s, even uh, swing uh, going back to the 30s style um, is present in one of the bands that they go see um, uh, in the movie, The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. They have a couple songs featured, but they also have kind of a similar look with the hats and the, the uh, big padded shoulder suits. Um, but beyond the boss tones, the soundtrack itself is really uh, a who's who of, of 90s artists and put together by um, the great music supervisor, uh, Karen Rockman, who did Pulp Fiction, Boogie Nights, and Reservoir Dogs, among others, uh, mostly working in the 90s. But uh, the soundtrack really has a bunch of great, great songs, uh, including 
just a girl by no doubt, which uh, we heard in the first clip uh, where Cher is going to pick up D um, and a couple Radiohead songs. That was my introduction to Radiohead. It was uh, a fake plastic trees acoustic version and my iron lung is featured a couple times, I think. Um, and of course, Coolio's rolling with the homies uh, or rolling with my homies rather um, is one of the early scenes of Ty just opening up at a party. Um, that song's featured and comes back uh, later on in a diner scene. Uh, so music really a, a key part of this movie and kind of nonstop wall to wall songs. And just one, one more observation note about uh, the specificities of, of 1995. We talked about the fashion, talked about the, the music selections on the soundtrack. The movie start to finish, great jokes, great dialogue, one great line after another, but there's uh, a handful of really good cell phone jokes that I, that I love in the film. And 1995, that's kind of like the bleeding edge of people have cell phones and they're making jokes about cell phone use and overuse. And, you know, only only a few years following that, it, it would become the ubiquitous thing where we're all on our cell phones way too much. Uh, part of contributing factors to the film holding up so well. Um, but uh, for 1995, still a little bit on the on the front end of, of um, that kind of observational humor. And uh, there's several excellent uh, jokes involving the cell phone use in the film. I mean, basically, this film predicted that we would all be sitting around dinner tables looking at our phones. That's pretty, that's pretty much prediction. nailed it. Yeah. yeah. And talking to your friend who you then pull up to as you're both talking to each other on your phone in the in the hallway. <laughs> Although now I guess that where that's further evolved, it wouldn't be talking on the phone, you'd just be texting. So besides the film's legacy as a very early and accurate depiction of, of cell phone use, um, you know, the film obviously has a, a very direct legacy in the fact that there was a TV series spin-off that, that ran for three years, starting in 1996. There was a series of uh, novels, there was a comic book series, and most recently there was the stage musical, which opened in 2018, written by Amy Heckerling, actually, and which incorporated many of the 90s uh, classics that ben, ben mentioned earlier. And apparently there's a, a series re reboot in, in development now that's set to focus on Dee's character. Um, but I don't think you can overstate the wider influence of, of Clueless and Cher Horowitz on other iconic female characters in film. I mean, just think of Reese Witherspoon's Elle Woods in, in Legally Blonde, probably wouldn't exist. Um, and also other female-directed teen movies, uh, films like Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, uh, Olivia Wilde's recent Booksmart, lots of nods to, to Clueless in there, um, even Autumn DeWilde's recent Emma adaptation, which was period set, but had a very contemporary uh, tongue-in-cheek feel to it. Um, and even Greta Gerwig's Little Women adaptation, actually, uh, could be compared to this film. And, and by the way, Amy Heckerling is actually named after Amy in Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. And the high school in Clueless, Bronson Alcott's high school, is named after Louisa May Alcott's father, who was a fierce advocate for women's rights and, and education. So I feel like if Amy Heckling could now make a Gen Z high school set adaptation of Little Women, the circle would be complete. So if you're listening, Amy Heckling, give me a call and, and we'll work on the script. Absolutely agree with everything that Abby was just listing off. 
And if you out there, our listeners, if you've made it this far, we, we presume you agree as well. I just want to make sure everyone's aware that um, a lot of what we just talked about and much, much more about the making of Clueless and the legacy of Clueless, you can read about in the really fun book with the perfect title, As If, from local Washington, D.C. area, film and television critic Jan Chaney. Do check it out. And if after all that clueless talk, you're ready for a rewatch, and we hope you are, or maybe a first-time watch, uh, the film is available currently on Netflix. And if you don't have Netflix, you can also rent it on the various uh, rental platforms, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, iTunes, etc. So it's uh, there available for you to, you to watch this weekend. But before we go, uh, we have to leave you with one of the most iconic, if not the most iconic, uh, scenes in the film which shares great performance in her debate class and with her teacher here played by Wallace Shawn. Should all oppressed people be allowed refuge in America? Amber will take the composition, Cher will be pro, Cher, two minutes. So, okay, like right now, for example, the Hadians need to come to America. But some people are all, what about the strain on our resources? But it's like, when I had this garden party for my father's birthday, right? I said RSVP because it was a sit-down dinner. But people came that, like, did not RSVP. So I was, like, totally bugging. I had to haul ass to the kitchen, redistribute the food, squish in extra place settings. But by the end of the day, it was like, the more, the merrier. And so, if the government could just get to the kitchen, rearrange some things, we could certainly party with the Hadians. And in conclusion, may I please remind you that it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. Thank you very much. Okay, so that wraps it up for this week's edition of Silver Streams. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we hope you see something you love this week. Bye, everyone. Have a, have a great weekend. Uh, goodbye, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in. And a reminder that we won't be back until August 7th is when our next episode drops. So if you are looking for our podcast, we're off for two weeks. And one more final reminder uh, that I think is important to just say is I think black lives still matter. Even if people aren't talking about it as much as they were a few weeks ago, I just wanted to say that again and say that we're looking for justice for Breonna Taylor and all the other lives lost and we're still out here in the streets. Uh, black lives still matter. A reminder to our listeners, you can find everything currently available in our virtual screening room on our website at afi.com silver. And a portion of the proceeds from screening these titles at home goes to support AFI Silver Theater. When you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our e-blast in order to keep up with our latest announcements. And if you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo at afi.com. You can also get in touch with us or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at AFI Silver Theater and Twitter at AFI Silver. And if you have streaming suggestions, please tag us with your picks. And as always, music for this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. To find more of their work, visit their website at sessions.blue. <laughs>